we're going to uh, kind of change up the branding of our series uh, for the next several weeks. We're uh, still going to be focusing on Christ and the Gospels. Uh, but for the next, uh, I think, eight weeks, we're going to sit on um, the stories that Jesus told. Uh, we call these parables. Um, and I went, when I was in Sunday school as a kid, parable, I was told parable was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And, and so that's, these are just stories that Jesus told, and, and we're going to talk about these stories because, uh, you know, Jesus was this really gifted, I mean, amongst many other things, he was a very, very gifted speaker, uh, the kind of speaker who could draw thousands of people to listen to him without a microphone. Um, and, and just like he was, he was just this, he must have just been a very dynamic personality. But I think we oftentimes lose, lose sight of the fact that... Um, that Christianity started as an Eastern religion. It's not the Western uh, religion uh, that it tends to be focused on today. It started off as an Eastern religion. Uh, in, the sa- in, in the same vein, uh, stylistically, I should say, as, say, um, you know, other Eastern religions, like maybe Buddhism or something like that, that the, the teaching style and the emphasis is different in Eastern religions than it is in Western religions. And so, uh, case in point... Jesus not only was a fantastic speaker, but he was uh, one of probably one of the greatest storytellers of his day. And I love a good story. Love, love, love a good story. I love hearing people. I mean, it, it, when you can sit kind of at the feet of somebody, or just listen to maybe to a podcaster of somebody who is an excellent, excellent storyteller, you just hang on their every word. And Jesus was that kind of speaker. I mean, he began to tell stories, and people would just lean in. You know, just just couldn't. Probably because there was no microphones, they couldn't hear him. But but also because, because you know, it, it was he just had that that quality about him. I I think when I always think of really great storytellers, I always think of uh, listening to uh, Garrison Keillor, uh, the news from Lake Wobegon on Prairie Home Companion on the on the radio and stuff. I mean, just uh, just that. I mean, he had that had that ability when he was still on the radio to just weave this story of this t- little town called Lake Wobegon where you, would, you just couldn't get enough. It was so rich in his, his ability to tell a story. And Jesus was a storyteller, uh, uh, I think, in his speaking style first and foremost. Now, the reason that's significant is because that's a very Eastern thing. It's a very Eastern thing for Eastern religions to kind of tell a story and for their, their students or listeners to kind of sit back and go, okay, I need to ponder that, you know. And, and, and Western thinking, which is what we're used to, is much more logical, rhetorical, uh, theological, right? It's, it's uh, you know, Jesus didn't have any concept of theology, like let's get clear definitions of God and, you know, so everything's got its right category and we, under, you know, understand where everything goes. There was none of that. So what happens a lot of times is that we take these very Eastern stories and we Westernize them in that, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, preachers do that, where it's, you know, you, you take a parable and everything has to have a category. Well, this person represents this and this person represents that. The cow means this and the, you know, whatever. And it's just like all these, everything's got to have its own, you know, category that we put it in. So it's all neat and tidy. And that's Western thinking. Everything has to have a place and it's logical. But the truth of the matter is that I think one of the reasons that Christianity can be so frustrating to people is that we're trying to cram Western thinking into Eastern thought. We are, um, it's, Western thinking is not comfortable with mystery. And Jesus asks us to be comfortable with mystery. 
that there's, there, it's okay that you don't, if you don't have every little detail figured out, you have what God wants you to have. And, and, and that should be enough. And so anyway, we're going to spend some time going through some of these stories. And today we're going to start with kind of the granddaddy of them all. I think, you know, if you line up all the parables that Jesus told, and some of them are lengthy and some of them are, you know, just a sentence, <coughs> more of an object lesson or something. <coughs> Pardon me. If you line them all up, kind of do apples to apples comparison, I think this one stands head and shoulders above the rest in just, and not only the beauty and uh, the shocking nature of it, but also as a representative story of who God is and what he's doing in the world. I think this one really encapsulates a lot of that. And it's a story that we call the prodigal son. Uh, Prodigal is just a fancy word for lost. The lost son. And so Jesus, when he tells this story about a son who was lost, he starts off, he actually tells two other stories first. If you're in a growth group this week, you're going to be uh, dealing with those two other stories. But he tells these two other stories of lost items first. And those stories are preceded by an event that happens where Jesus is doing his Jesus thing and he is eating with sinners. And there's a bunch of really religious people sitting around, turning their noses up at Jesus going, what in the world is this guy doing eating with sinners? And then Jesus takes off and tells these, story, these three stories of lost things and lost people. Um, and it's just, it, he gives us this snapshot of, this is why I'm eating with sinners, because this is the heart of God. And he begins to explain what the heart of God looks like. And so we have this story of a father with two sons. Uh, the father is a, evidently a very wealthy landowner. And uh, it's just a really interesting story. So let's just dive into it. <clears throat> Luke 15, we're going to be in Luke 15, start with verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11, I'm going to get a quick drink. And he said, talking about Jesus, he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered um, his property in reckless living. Um, Let me stop right there. So already in just those first couple of sentences, Jesus drops drops a shock bomb on the crowd. Okay, There there was something very shocking just even in those opening sentences about what Jesus has said. So for those of us, if if your parents in the room... You know that, um, you know, if your kid comes to you and says, hey, I need some money or I want some money, uh, there's nothing that shocking about that, right? That's, that happens from time to time. Not a big deal. But the manner in which this son went to his father asking for money was not just, hey, dad, I need some money. And what he says is, um, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. He's asking for his inheritance, while his father is still alive. And, in t- and, and, and you know, for all intents and purposes, what he's saying is, Dad, um, you cannot die soon enough. Like, I need and want my inheritance now. Like, if it was up to me, if I had my druthers, you would be dead already so I could get my inheritance, but you're still alive. Good job with the vegetables. Um, you're lasting longer than any of us anticipated. So I need this money right now, right now, since you won't do us all a favor and die. Um, 
This was to, for, for a son, especially back in, I mean, that, that directive language would be shocking to any of us today. But for this son to do this to this father back in this day was, was just a supreme insult. It was literally saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. So this is a very, very um, ugly-minded, ugly-attitude son. I think we could all agree I mean, I, I can't imagine the pain if one of my kids came to me and was like, I really wish you were dead. First of all, they wouldn't because they, they're getting no inheritance. But, <laughs> but, but if they came to me and was like, I, I wish you were dead so I could just have your amazing book collection. <laughs> so, or whatever it is they, they think they're going to get from me. Um, you know, it, it, I, the pain you would feel from that to that your child wishes you weren't even living. You know, I mean, that's, that's pretty brutal for a parent to experience that. That's, that's, that's very brutal. And so here's what happens. He says, um, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. We're going to hear more about that reckless living in a little bit. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. I don't know if you know anything about Jewish life, but this was a big taboo. This was a no-no. Like, they're not crazy about pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he, sp- he wastes all his money on reckless living. A famine comes, he has nothing, no way to support himself, he finds a job, the only job he can find is working with some farmer's pigs, which is just, that's an unclean animal in Jewish life, you know, it's not, that's not kosher, literally, not kosher at all, right? And so he, and he's starving, he can't get help from anybody anybody to the point that his only option is to begin to eat the stuff that the pigs are eating. Um... This is a low day for a Jew, okay? This is, this is not, this is, you know, nothing to write home about. So this is, he's, 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 he's at this point where he's getting ready to have a literal come to Jesus moment, right? I mean, things are sinking into him. The, the direness of his situation is beginning to sink in. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, he comes to his senses. He's like, okay, I'm just going to go to dad and, and say, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just, just put me to work. Just, I'll bunk with the servants, whatever. Um, I just want to be near home again, right? And so he makes the journey home. And I love that phrase, um, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Which leads us to believe that the father had been sitting and waiting, looking to see if his son would return, hopeful that maybe he would return. And he sees his son a long ways off, and 
he does something, again, shocking in this story. He runs to his son. Um, in this day, it, a wealthy man, a man in general, an older man, but a wealthy man in particular, uh, it would have been uh, undistinguished uh, for him to be seen running. People maybe ran to him. His servants would run to him, but he wasn't running to anybody. And for him to see his son a long way, like his son can't even get to the door, and his father is like, he, he, he just can't wait to get to his son. Just can't wait to get to his son. What a powerful, powerful. He runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned, he starts his speech. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, he interrupts him. The father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and, 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 and bring the fatted calf. <coughs> Excuse me. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. <clears throat> For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So uh, he sees his son a long ways off. He goes and he runs out to greet him and he just embraces him. And he kisses him. This dad is so, even though the son had wished him dead at one time, he's just happy that his son has come home. And he, he, he just he showers him with, he's like, he doesn't even let him finish his speech. No, 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 no. We're, we're throwing a party. Start, you know, fire up the barbecue. Uh, get this guy some clothes. Put a ring on, on his hand. You know, like, my son, who I thought was dead, is here, and he's back home again. And, and what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love of God. What an amazing picture of the love of God that as far as many of us have wandered from God at times in our life, as far as we have been from God at different points in our life, that we serve a God, a Father, who is looking for us. Uh, some would even say chasing after us, ready for us to come. And I, and I love that we serve this God who, because if you're like me, when you've wandered from God in the past, you have this kind of sense of when you finally have your come to Jesus moment, you have the sense of, man, I got to get my life right. I got to get my I got to get things cleaned up. I got to, I got to stop these bad habits and this sinful behavior. I got, I got to I need to get right with God. I got, I, need, I got work to do on myself. And we often put ourselves in this position of, of working our way back to God when we have a God who is just looking for the first step. And when he sees the first step, he runs and he, he, he closes the distance. And before we can start our speech and begin working on our life and everything else, he's just looking for a move towards him. And when he sees that move, boom. We're in again. We're in again. There's, he, he doesn't want to hear our speech of how we need to get cleaned up. He's not interested in us getting cleaned up because we can't be cleaned up enough for a holy God. He just wants us to be part of the family. We'll worry about the cleaning up later. We'll get you some new clothes. We'll get you the ring on your finger. We'll get the shoes on your feet. But for now, thank me. Thank me you're home, right? Thank God you're home. And, and I love that our God is that way. I love that he, he runs to us. He meets us. He, he's just looking for that first step towards us. And, and the beautiful thing is that, is that Scripture tells us he gives us the faith that we need to make that first step to begin with. It's awesome. Awesome. 
So what I, what I want to do, I mean, it's, it is a beautiful, beautiful picture of, of God rescuing, redeeming lost people. Uh, and we tend to focus on the father in the story or the lost son in the story. I want to switch it up a little bit this morning, and I want to focus on something a little bit different. I want us to focus on the sin. I want us to focus on the sin. I'm not normally a big focus on the sin type of guy, right? But, I, 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 but stick with me. I, I want to do this. And so this is the big point I want you to get uh, today uh, for this section anyway, is this. Don't waste your sin. Don't waste your sin. Grief produces repentance, and repentance produces victory. Now, what I mean by that is this. I think a lot of times, if you've been a Christian for very long, we can, you know, and, and we still sin. You know, it's not, you don't become perfect after you become a person of faith. We still all sin, every single one of us, and every once in a while, every, you know, every so often, it's a doozy, right? And I think sometimes we become too quick to, well, thank God God loves me and he forgives me, and we just brush past it. And I think it's actually really important to allow the Holy Spirit to do something in your life before you rush past your sin. Don't waste the opportunity for the Holy Spirit, because I think God has given you a gift, and this is what God does. God takes our ugliness, uh, Scripture says, our ashes, and turns them into beauty, right? He has a, he has a way of making all things good. I mean, he can take the worst situations, the worst mistakes that we have made. I, it's, it amazes me. This is why God is so amazing to me. It amazes me how often God can take my most shameful and humiliating mistakes and somehow work it into a victory in my life. That's incredible. Like, if I'm God, that's not what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm beating people down with you dirty so-and-so, right? It's a good thing I'm not God. But God, our Father, doesn't do that. He's just like, no, 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 that worst moment of your life, that most shameful moment of your life, stick with me, and I'm going to take that and make that a thing that's actually a victory in your life. So thankful that God does that for me, and he does it for you too. But what happens a lot of times is that we rush past that sin. The Holy Spirit gives us this really great gift called conviction. Um. It's not, a lot of times we, we equate the Holy Spirit with our conscience. You know, your conscience is bugging you. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience. Um, because here's the thing. There are lots of things in our life that our conscience will tell us is the right thing to do that are contrary to Scripture. Your conscience can be seared in a really weird direction. There are people, a part of hate organizations, whose conscience tell them to do certain things that is not necessarily scriptural, right? And so what we have to actually do is trust the Holy Spirit enough to rearrange our conscience and, and transform our thinking into the mind of Christ. And that's different than just your natural conscience on things. But the Holy Spirit does this convicting thing in our life where when we wander from God, when we sin against God, or when we sin against people that we love or care about in our life, He convicts us. It's a little dash of... of man, you're going off track, or it's a little dash of guilt or shame or, or, or whatever around something that we know is contrary to God's word in our life. Now, we live in a very no-shame society. Our society tells us over and over, you shouldn't have to feel shame about anything. You just be you, you know, whatever. We live in this very no-shame society. And so for me to sit up here and tell you, 
you know, hold on to that shame for just a second, and I'll, and I'll explain that in just a second, is, is a little bit jarring, maybe, and foreign to us. Like, why are you trying to pour, pour all this guilt on me? This is not about pouring guilt on you. It's, not about, it's about embracing the gift that the Holy Spirit has for you, and one of his gifts in your life is conviction, and the purpose of conviction is to draw you into a closeness to God again. It's a gift. Now, some gifts that people give you, you don't necessarily ask for, right? There are some gifts that are, are good gifts that you didn't really add. Like, I've, I've been given gifts, you know, different things over the years at birthdays and Christmas that I'll look at and go, oh, I guess I could use that. Uh, it wasn't on my wish list or whatever else, you know, but, but okay, that's cool. It's, you know, and so, like, some gifts are good gifts, but maybe not necessarily gifts that we ask for. And conviction is one of those gifts. Nobody here is like, <clears throat> going, convict me, Holy Spirit. You know, nobody, none of us are craving conviction. But it is a gift from God because it's his way of, of drawing us in, keeping us close, keeping us from wandering off too far. And so this is what I want you to do. I don't want us to become a people who wallow in our sin or, or get stuck in our shame or our guilt, but I want you to become a person who when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, you take a beat. You just take a breath. Take a beat and, and ponder what it is that the Holy Spirit has for you. Allow that to kind of, allow the weight of your sin to sink in a little bit so that you can experience what it is the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. Why? Because grief produces repentance. And, when, and you guys have heard me talk a hundred times about it if you've been here very long. Repentance is not about you just going to God and say, oh, I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with you being sorry. Repentance is not an attitude. Repentance is an action. Repentance is you going, I was going this direction. I'm not going to do that anymore. Now I'm going this direction. It's an action. It's I was focused on living for myself, and now I'm going to focus on living for you. It was I was worshiping myself, and now I'm going to start worshiping you. It was I was living for my own agenda and my own plans and my own ease of life, and now I'm going to submit myself to you and what you have for me. Repentance requires change and authentic, like true change. If you want to be a person of repentance and a person of change, that only comes if you feel the weight of your sin. And you have to, we have to get to a point to where we allow our sins to grieve us in the same way that they grieve the heart of God. Allow your sin to grieve you in the same way that your sin grieves the heart of God. Not because, again, he wants you to be trapped in some sort of guilt and shame trap, but because it's important for you to take that next step of repentance. This, you do, this is not, again... Just because you don't always hear this version of things preached in church, it, it's not foreign to you. If you're a parent and you're a good parent, you do this with your kids. And God's a good father too, and he does it with us. If, if you're a good parent, you do this exact same thing. If, if your kid uh, you know, slaps her sister in the face and you say, wow, you really shouldn't have slapped your sister in the face. And they say, okay, and they run off and go play. You're left thinking, I'm not sure they're really getting the weight of what they just did. I'm not sure they really understand why, you know, I was trying to stop them and talk to them about that. If they just, and if you just let them take off, then you're not doing your job as a parent. No, what we do as parents is we go, let's sit down. We need to have a talk. Like this is, 
that was not okay. How, and you try to work in some empathy. Like, how do you think that made them feel? Not good. You know, that sort of, they do that sort of thing. And, or, 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 you know, let, I, I want you to sit here. Maybe it's in timeout. Or I want you to sit in your room or something. And I, I just want you to sit and think about what you did and, and why it is that you did that and how it made that other person feel. And you, you let them take a beat and let the weight of that decision sink in with them. Why? Because you don't want them to be a person who goes around slapping people. Right? And so you let them kind of take that in and process that. That's what good parenting looks like. That's what it looks like. And so God the Father does the exact same with us. He's like, man, this really grieved me that you made that decision. And he sends the Holy Spirit who convicts us. And if we allow ourselves to just take that breath, take that beat and go, okay, like I don't want to be that person that's grieving the heart of God. So Holy Spirit, you know, what have you got for me? What have you got for me? Again, I'm not talking living in guilt and shame, getting trapped in that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying process what it is the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you at the time. Allow yourself to process that. So genuine grief over grieving the heart of God leads to genuine repentance, which if genuine repentance happens, then that's where you start and you begin to see victory over your sin. Victory over your sinful behavior. And that's what we all want, that God is this God, again, who takes our worst decisions, our worst moments in our life, and he can turn them into these beautiful things. How does he do that? Like for me and for a lot of people I know, your worst mistake becomes this thing. Your worst mistake um, becomes this thing that suddenly, because you went through that, you're able to help other people through going, that are going through similar situations. Like I can't tell you how many people that I've helped over the years that I was able to help them because I walked through the same darkness that they walked through at one time. You know, I walked that darkness once too. And you have too. And, 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 and God just, he takes these weak, horrible moments and he spins them out into victory for us. Just awesome. I love the way that he does that. I love it. So let's move on with the rest of the story. We're going to focus now on the older son. The older son, he, he's, he's a character. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, refused to go into the party. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, verse 29, he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even say my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, by the way, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, you have this very uh, angry, very jealous, very prideful uh, brother who is just like, what in the world? Why are you throwing a party for this jerk? He wanted you dead not too long ago, and now he's come running back home because he wasted all his money on, on, on hookers, and you are like, what are you doing? 
You, and in the meantime, I can't even get a gerbil from you. You're killing the fattened calf for him, right? And, and just this whole thing. And so he's like, he's very uh, just emotional. It's raw emotion. It's anger. It's jealousy. It's pride. It's all of that coming out. Now, in case you haven't figured out yet, the older son in this story is all of us. Church people. Religious people. That's us. And you're like, I'm not that guy. Okay, maybe, maybe but, but give it a beat, okay? Give it a beat, and just maybe you might find, I mean, you might be looking at the story going, I feel like I identify more with the younger son. That's, that's fine, that's good. Um, but but I, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you probably can identify with a little bit of both. There's a little bit of the younger son in you, there's a little bit of the older son in you. And, uh, and so let, let, let's just take, take a look at this for a second, that you've got... This guy who is looking at something that is worth celebrating, something that is beautiful to everyone else around him, he can't celebrate it because all he can see is why is he getting that and I'm not. What, 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 what's, what's up with that? And that is such a, well, the big point I want to put up is this. Check your blind spots. Check your blind spots. As Christians, we all have these sin, sin blind spots, these kind of spiritual blind spots that we, you have to be aware of and you have to check for them occasionally. And it looks like this. Like if you see murder happen at the back of the room, if you see a murder happen, if a murder takes place right now at the back of the room, none of us in this room are going, was that a sin? Was that, I mean, we're in church, so maybe, I, I, like, was that, was that, and, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's one of those deals where it's okay for him, but not for me. Like, none of us are doing that. We look at that murder and we go, whoa, that was a very egregious sin that just took place at the back of the room. You know, what, like, that's, that's, if, and you can do that same thing with maybe lying or stealing or adultery, you know, the, the kind of those, those Ten Commandment type issues where you look at those things and go, wow, that was definitely a sin I just witnessed there. And, you know, like you, like you get it. You, it's identifiable. What's, but we have these blind spots that are not as clear. They're not as easy to identify. And they, are, they tend to look like things like pride, maybe, maybe a little anger, maybe, maybe some jealousy, Maybe just this, you know, unhealthy ego or, or whatever is going on. Those things can creep up on you and sink into your own life in a way that you will not even feel like they're sin if you're not careful. And they're just as ugly. They can be just as ugly. A lot of it, one of the things I love about Living Hope is we have not only a lot of brand new believers that attend here, but we also have a lot of believers who have come from other churches where Maybe one of the reasons you left another church was because uh, of legalism and um, um, hypocrisy and other things, just ugly things that you saw in other churches where you're like, I, I can't be around this anymore. I got to get away from this. This is not right. But, but if you don't check those blind spots in your life, if you're not careful, you begin to become that person that you once hated. It creeps in the life of every believer. Not some, not a few. I'm talking all of us. 
It creeps up on all of us. It's, we, ha, we gravitate naturally towards hypocrisy and legalism. It's the natural state. You are not accidentally not a hypocrite. That didn't make sense, but you know what I'm saying. You are, if, you, just, if your life is left unchecked, if you're not cultivating healthy ground for your faith to grow in, you will naturally gravitate towards legalism and hypocrisy. It's just the way that we're built. You have to try not to be those things in order not to be those things. I, I use this example last service. I'll use it again. I think it's the exact same thing with racism. It's the exact same thing with racism. Nobody is accidentally not a racist. You have to cultivate things in your life to ensure that you avoid racist thinking and racist behavior because human history has proved over and over and over, we just gravitate towards naturally racist tendencies. It just happens. And so if you're not going to be that person, you have to be intentional about not being that person. And it's the same thing in church life. If you're, if you're going to not be a hypocrite, if you're going to not be a legalist, eaten up with pride, eaten up with whatever, you have to intentionally work on not being that person or you will naturally gravitate towards that. You'll become the person that you were once trying to get away from, that you once hated with, that you saw in other Christians or other churches or whatever else. And so we have to check those blind spots. You have to be aware. Is this something? Now, here's the way this works. The first time or two that you demonstrate an attitude or a behavior or you say something or you do something that, is, that indicates hypocrisy or indicates jealousy or pride or whatever else, the first time or two you do that, you'll feel a little twinge. You'll feel a little bit. You'll feel like, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't, I wish I wouldn't think that way. I wish I didn't, you know, whatever. You'll, you'll feel it a little bit. But if you're not careful, you can let, if you're not checking those blind spots, they'll hit so often that eventually you won't even feel it anymore and you won't even see, you won't even be able to see the ugliness that's in you. You'll become one of those people that uh, churches are full of, that they hear a really fantastic, say, say a really fantastic sermon or something really meaningful and they sit back going, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon today. And they never take it into themselves and they never go, what? What maybe did God have for me in that? It's always about, wow, Sister Sue could have really stand to have heard that. I didn't mean you, Sister Sue. I, I, just, I, just, I just chose a random name. So anyway, uh, but yeah, like, like we, we just, we, we, we do that sort of thing. And if you're not careful, we become those people that once we were trying not to be. And now I get that by and large, I'm preaching to the choir here that Living Hope tends to be a church that gets it. We know that it's about Christ. It's not about ourselves. We, you know, we, we tend to be a more, I think, a compassionate group. And, and I, I, you know, there's a lot going on that's really good there. But if we want to stay that kind of church, can I tell you, every church used to be that kind of church. Every church used to be focused on the right thing. Every church used to be compassionate. and They all used to be that. But what happens as we get older and, you know, and, and things progress in our faith, more mature in our faith, whatever, oftentimes we let those creepy sins creep up on us because we, we stop checking our blind spot and, and soon it's us and we, didn't, we, don't, we can't remember when it happened. We just became this unhealthy, dysfunctional, legalistic, hypocritical 
Christian, ugly Christian that, you know, the, when the world thinks about Christianity and Christians, they, they think about exactly those things. They're hypocrites. They're, they're you know, all they want to do is tell you what not to do. They're, you know, un, uncaring. And there's a reason the world thinks that. Because it's true. It's absolutely true. Because that's the way, and it, by the way, it's not just Christians. It's everybody in the world. Human nature, we all bend in that direction. But if we're going to go counterculture, then we have to be intentional about being not those people, right? We have to be intentional about being the church that God is actually calling us to be, to be the believers individually that God is calling us to be. We have to work towards that and try to become that person. Check your blind spots because they creep up on you. Now, like I have a goal. One of my goals is that I want to, um, I really hope that when I'm at the end of my life, whenever that is, in my 70s, 80s, 90s, I, beyond, I don't know when, when, when God's going to say enough is enough of you. Um, but when I'm at the end of my life, my goal is that I'm still a person who is joyful and positive and inspiring to people who are feeling God's callings on their life, that I lift people up around me to believe that they can do the things God is calling them to do, and not the person that just sits at the back, arms crossed, scowl on my face, just criticizing everything I see. I don't want to be that guy. I don't. I don't think any of us want to be that guy or that, or that lady. I, we don't want to be that person. It's, um, it's hard to look. It's hard, it's hard to fellowship with people that are that way. It's hard when people turn their countenance so far from Christ that, that they become hard to love. I, I've, I've gone to church with people who I, I, I genuinely believe love Jesus but became difficult to love themselves because, because they let these things creep up in their lives. I don't want to be that guy. Now, I, it, that's an uphill battle. For, I'm already a grumpy old man. I, it's going to be difficult. But in my heart of hearts, I don't want to be that person. And so hopefully I can look at the way I, the way I lead, the way I treat people, the way I speak to people, and... And even though I am naturally a grumpy old man, hopefully I can kind of go against that flow once in a while and, and be more of who God is calling me to be. I don't want those things creeping up on my life. I don't want to be, for years, for years, I was a part of churches where I was looking around going, church has got to be more than this. It's got to be something different than this. This is just, it's ugliness so much of the time. And one of my biggest fears is that I become that thing that I once despised. Like, I, I don't want that. I don't want you guys or your kids or your grandkids looking at me going one, one day going, man, when's that guy going to die? <laughs> All right? Can't wait for that funeral, right? Like, I don't want that. I, I, want, I want people to be able to look at my life and look at your life and go, and every time I got around that person, they, they made me feel like I, I could do more for Jesus than I thought I could. You know, that's, that's the legacy I want to leave, a legacy of faith, a legacy of joy. And so 
But I, I know and you know now that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by cultivating that intentionally all along the way. All along the way. And you have to make that decision. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that woman. I'm going to be something different, something better. I want to leave a legacy of faith in Jesus Christ, joy in Jesus Christ, life to the abundance in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the legacy I want to leave. So let's leave that legacy. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you are such a good father, that I, I can, God, see aspects of myself in, in both of those sons. Uh, I, I, I I'm so thankful that you do not let me wander too far. You chase after me. You, you have redeemed me and forgiven me, and you embrace me, and you continue, this is the mo most amazing part, you continue to use me to your glory uh, when at times I'm sure I'm unusable. And so I, I just thank you for that, God. I thank you. So would you... Just continue to make me into the son of yours that you have ordained for me to be. God, I also recognize that older son in myself as well. And if I'm honest with myself, there are times that I, that I do get a little judgy. That I do look around and go, and whatever, I'm, I'm more critical than I should be or, um, or whatever. God, I pray, pray that you would just increase my joy increase my uh, fulfillment in you, increase my faith. God, help my faith spill over so much that uh, it inspires other people in their faith. And I pray that for everybody else in this room too. Increase our faith. Increase it. And God, guard us against those, those subtle sins that tend to creep up on us, the ones that we maybe maybe even justify in ways and pretend they're not really sins or they're just personality quirks or whatever, God. Make us over into the people that you've called us to be. And help us to submit to you and allow you to do that. And we'll, we'll pray all this in Jesus' name. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And amen, amen. God is good, amen? Amen. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you next week.